on a mission. It's a mission to turn our world upside down. That happens when people hear the good news of Jesus. So get ready for God to turn you upside down. Recently, I read about a beautiful painting by the French Impressionist Claude Monet. That painting was recently exhibited in Sweden at Sweden's National Museum in the capital city of Stockholm. Large crowds were seeing Monet's masterpiece in that museum. But one day, from out of the crowd, two women emerged. They ran up to the masterpiece and they smeared red paint on it. Imagine. Evidently, those two women were protesting climate change. It seems to be a popular thing these days. Recently in London, some activists threw tomato soup at a painting by Vincent van Gogh. Masterpieces by several famous artists are being ruined. Well, in the early chapters of Genesis, we read that God created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. God placed them in a beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden. And along with the rest of his creation, this garden was God's masterpiece, a perfect masterpiece, in fact. In that garden were thousands of trees, and many of them, evidently, were fruit trees. God told Adam and Eve they could eat all they wanted from those fruit trees, but there was only that one tree. God said they must not eat the fruit from that one tree in the middle of the garden. You probably know what happened. It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They ate from that forbidden tree, and in doing that, They ruined God's masterpiece. They ruined God's perfectly good creation, like smearing red paint on Monet's masterpiece. They ruined it. Well, here's how it happened in the account found in Genesis chapter 3. One day in that garden, Satan appeared to the woman Eve. He was in the form of a serpent. And Satan engaged Eve in a conversation. And Satan gave to Eve a very tempting reason to eat the fruit of that forbidden tree. He said this, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan was tempting Eve to disobey God's command. And at the heart of the temptation was this, that if they ate of the tree, they would become like God. That's interesting, isn't it? Remember, Adam and Eve were already like God. We we went over that a few episodes back. Genesis 1 verse 26 tells us that God created the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, in his own image, according to his likeness. So Adam and Eve were already like God, like God in their personhood, in their self-awareness, in being able to think and to speak and to love and so on. They were already like God. But here comes Satan. In John chapter 8, Jesus says this about Satan. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's John 8, 44. The Apostle Paul says this to the Corinthian believers, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, so your minds may somehow be led astray. Satan is cunning, or as other translations put it, he's crafty, he's sneaky, he's tricky. Satan not only tells a lie to Eve, but he's very sneaky about it. Satan is saying, in effect, Eve, you're still not fully like God. 
because you don't know the difference between good and evil. God does. God has that very special knowledge, but you don't. So go ahead, Eve, eat of the fruit, and you'll become like God. How sneaky, how crafty are the lies of Satan even today? Well, we read that Eve reflected on what Satan had said, and we're told that she started to believe that that fruit would be, quote, desirable for gaining wisdom. Interesting words. Desirable for gaining wisdom. What? Didn't she already have perfect wisdom in her creation? Created in God's likeness, she had perfect knowledge and wisdom. But Eve desired something more, more than what God had given her. She desired God's kind of knowledge, God's kind of wisdom. That's the tricky part of Satan's temptation. You know, in some sense, God knows evil as well as good because God has perfect knowledge about all things. But God has never personally experienced evil. He doesn't have experiential knowledge of evil. God is a perfect God. He's sinless without any evil. We as humans can never have that kind of knowledge or wisdom. That knowledge, that wisdom is for God alone. But Eve, and later on Adam, weren't satisfied with that. They wanted to be exactly like God. And I guess that's where we get to the heart of human sin and evil. It's, it's a desire to want too much. It's a desire ultimately to try to become equal to God and to even be our own gods, if that were possible. I mean, think what you could do if you had God's kind of knowledge perfect knowledge of all things, including the knowledge of future events. Look, if you knew the future like God, you could become a a billionaire, no, a, a trillionaire. You would know then, for example, which stocks on the market would soar 500%, 1,000% in the next few years. You could leave Elon Musk and Warren Buffett in the dust, you'd be so rich. Not only that, but if you knew the future perfectly, you could control any government any world leader, you could even determine the outcome of human history. But of course, that's impossible for us as human beings. Yes, we're like God in many ways, but only God has perfect knowledge, infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom, knowledge not only about the past, but it's knowledge about the present and about the future. That kind of knowledge is simply not given to us by God. We are created beings. He is the creator. So here's the question for all of us today. For you today, are you content? Are you content to let God be God? The only true God? And will you be satisfied as a creature, as someone created by God in the beginning? With incomplete knowledge and wisdom? Or are you striving to be your own God, to gain your own knowledge of who God is and what is true spiritual reality. Maybe even you think of yourself as some kind of God. Maybe, in effect, you've been living as your own God, accountable only to yourself. Well, here's another aspect of the temptation presented to Eve. In verse 6 of Genesis 3, we read that Eve saw that forbidden fruit. She saw, quote, that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye. 
That refers to the appeal of of pleasure, something we think that would be pleasing to us and to our desires, something very pleasurable. We as humans are are very tempted by physical pleasure, whether it's a rush of, of sexual stimulation or some rush of adrenaline or maybe the rush of chemicals, say from drugs or alcohol or mushrooms, whatever. Those are powerful temptations for us as humans. In fact, people will even sell their souls, their future, their very lives, just to get more and more of those pleasures. I looked up the statistics. Last year in the United States, according to Reuters, a reputable source, 93,000 people died of drug overdose. 93,000 people died seeking the pleasure that drugs would give them. Now, of course, for many it became a habit. They weren't receiving the pleasure they originally received, but that's where it starts. To get a hit, to get a high, to get that pleasurable rush. 93,000 people last year, 2022, died of drug overdose. Wow. People are selling their souls for a rush, for a chemical hit. And so many others are living without hope in this world, maybe to get a rush of, of sports or of money or fame or, or power or control. Wow, those are things that give us a rush. And often, literally, death is the result. In fact, God warned Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of that, that forbidden fruit, you shall die. You shall die. Well, despite all of this, human beings, all of us, so often are living for pleasure or for perfect knowledge, infinite knowledge, as much as we can get. You know, the New Testament sometimes refers to this pleasure principle as the lust of the eyes. Now, often we think of lust as sexual lust or sexual pleasure. But no, it's it's a broader term than that. Anything that the eyes can look on, that the mind can imagine through the eyes, we live for that pleasure. The last part of Romans chapter 1 speaks, yes, about sexual pleasure, wrong sexual lust, but that's not the only sin mentioned there. If you drop down to the end of, chapter, of the chapter, listen to how sin is displayed in, in ordinary human lives, not only back then in those days, but also in our own day. Romans 1, 28 through 31, quote, Since they, people in general, did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, deceit, and malice. They are God-haters. They are arrogant and boastful. That's just part of the list. That's the human condition today. That's our own condition by nature. We are full of deceit, similar in that way to Satan, full of, full of lies. We self-deceive, we deceive ourselves, we deceive others, we try to deceive God. We are at the same time arrogant and boastful. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We are by nature also God-haters. Wow, that's a strong word. God-haters, hating the true God, hating the God of the Bible. But ultimately, isn't that the root of our problem? 
And wasn't that the root of the sin of, of, of Adam and Eve, that they actually didn't love God, not fully, not truly, or else they would have obey, obeyed his commands? Ultimately, they loved themselves more than they loved God. In fact, they wanted to be equal to God with his kind of knowledge and wisdom. Ultimately, they showed that they hated God because they rejected him. They rejected his commands. They rejected his love and care for them in that garden. In that sense, they hated God. Well, from Genesis chapter 3, we can read what happened next. And indeed, it's a sad story. Eve took of that fruit, the fruit of that prohibited tree. She ate it, and she gave some to her husband, Adam, and he also ate it. And in that moment, everything changed. Everything. We're not told how much changed all in these uh, few verses, but as we go on through the Bible, we realize how much has changed. And next time, we'll, we'll go into that. God's masterpiece was ruined. Like red paint thrown on the artist's canvas, the masterpiece was ruined. And the next verse says this, Then the eyes of both of them, of both Adam and Eve, were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Their eyes were opened wide, really too wide. Now, to have good eyes as God created them, that was, was very good. Eyes that would contemplate God and, and perceive his glory. Eyes that looked upon the goodness of God's creation. Eyes and knowledge that understood uh, how to take care of the garden and to live according to that first great commission. Perfectly good eyes in the beginning. But now in their rebellion, their disobedience, their eyes saw too much. Or their minds processed what they saw in a different way. They saw their own and each other's physical nakedness, which in itself would not be evil. But the text implies a certain shame in that looking. The shame of disobeying God, the shame of violating his commands, and realizing that at this very moment, they had done it. Now they saw too much. They knew too much that they truly had rebelled against God and his will. And that disobedience always brings shame. Yes, we disobey God today. We will break God's commandments at times. But isn't it true that when we do that, especially as believers, especially when we have God's Spirit within us, we can feel an overwhelming sense of shame? Here's how one secular expert defines shame. Quote, Shame is a feeling of embarrassment or humiliation that arises from the perception of having done something dishonorable, immoral, or improper. People who experience shame usually try to hide the thing they feel ashamed of. When shame is chronic, it can involve the feeling that you are fundamentally flawed. Now that's a secular definition, the definition of the world. But it comes close to a biblical definition. Adam and Eve felt shame because they knew what they did was wrong. They didn't just feel guilty about it, but they became ashamed of it. And it wasn't their merely perception of wrongdoing. They actually knew it. Their feeling of shame wasn't just over breaking some rule, but as we mentioned earlier, their shame went very deep into their heart. They knew they had not shown love toward God. 
They weren't satisfied to live for God, their Creator. It was the shame of preferring themselves as gods. And as that secular definition says, people who experience shame usually try to hide. So the account in Genesis 3 continues that out of their shame and sense of guilt, Adam and Eve tried to hide from God. They, quote, hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And finally, Adam answered, Oh God, I I heard you in the garden and I, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Their hiding from God wasn't merely because they were unclothed, naked. That too, the verse says it. But accompanying that fear, their being afraid, was the fear that now God would know they had sinned. God would now know that they disobeyed him. And they started becoming terribly afraid of him. Imagine that. Literally afraid of the one who lovingly made them. The one who was walking and talking with them in the garden. Their very best friend in that sense. Their most warm and loving and understanding friend. Imagine being afraid of that kind of friend. The one that you so delighted in for so many days and weeks and months. But in that moment, in their disobedience... Adam and Eve became afraid of that friend, their loving creator. It's a powerful description of ourselves also, isn't it? For some of us in the past, when we didn't know the true God, maybe we were raised in a family that didn't know God, we didn't know any better, or when we were invited to church or when we read our Bibles, we simply rejected it, or we settled for something that really wasn't true according to God's word. Or maybe we were raised in a Christian family. Maybe we had parents who were trusting in Jesus, but we ourselves, well, in those early days, we were only knowing about God intellectually. We knew him as a perfect God, a God who gave rules and commandments, a God who said, do this, don't do that, and if you do it, you will die. And then when we disobeyed God, we not only knew deep down we had done wrong, but we knew we really did that we deserved God's judgment and his punishment. But how did we respond? Instead of running to God, running to God and, and asking him for forgiveness, we often compound our sin by running away from God and even trying to hide from him. You know, I think it's true that by nature today, all people instinctively try hiding from God. Oh, they don't run as Adam and Eve did to a different location in the garden. But today it's more that people will simply push God away or they push him out of their minds. They push him into a different location. For many people, it's much easier to say that there is no God than to take responsibility for their actions and their thoughts and their pride before the true God. Better to say there is no God. Then you can live easier. You can live more easily without guilt, without shame, convincing themselves that the God of the Bible is not real. And many people I've talked to through the years say this, that when they started to think seriously about God, the God of the Bible, they actually started feeling more guilt in their lives. And yes, at times they became ashamed. And that, I would say, is actually a good thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. 
that we do feel that guilt. We do feel some shame about our sin. The Bible says that only as we humbly admit our guilt, how we've rejected God, how we've tried to run from him, then God in grace shows himself to us. In James chapter 4, verse 10, we read, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He will lift you up. God is still closer than you can imagine. Well, here's the good news. Very good news in this story. God was taking the initiative all along. You know, God always takes the initiative. He's the one who starts looking for Adam and Eve when they ran away. He's the one who called out their names, those made in his image. And how encouraging that is for us today. Whether we're already believers, followers of Jesus, or whether we're not yet following Jesus. The good news and the encouragement is that God is still looking for us, calling out for us. Why does he do that? Well, for one thing, and we'll get into this later, God knows that by nature, we don't go looking for God. No, we don't. And like our first parents, we're still rebelling against God. We're also listening to the lies of Satan, and we're allowing ourselves to be tempted We also fall for the lies and the deceptions of Satan himself. Instead of listening to the source of all truth, God himself, we listen to the deceiver. You know, God didn't give up on Adam and Eve. And he didn't kill them for their disobedience. He, He could have. God had every right to kill them. He could have simply pushed the delete button, so to speak. And he could have started over. He could have created a new masterpiece. They had smeared his original masterpiece with red paint. They had ruined it. And he would have been perfectly fair, perfectly just to have started over. But amazingly, the creator God showed Adam and Eve mercy. Though they were guilty, God reached out. And he found them, so to speak. He found them. And that's still how God is reaching out to us today. In Ephesians 2, we read it again and again. God, of the richness of his grace, has saved us. God showed us mercy in Jesus. He saves us not because we're good. He knows we're not. He saves us not because we're trying hard, even if we try hard. God saves us despite ourselves. God saves us in Jesus who took our sins, who took our guilt, who took our shame to that cross and who died in our place and then in turn the one who gives us his very own righteousness. All of that is God's gift to us. So where are you? God is still asking that. He's asking that today. Where are you really? Could it be that you're still trying to hide? Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Randall. This podcast is produced by my brothers in Christ, Dennis and Moses. Won't you tell your friends about us? We're Mission Upside Down.